Welcome back to another episode of The Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, Asia, and the fate of the 21st century. I am Misha Oslin, a fellow at Hoover, and your co-host, along with my co-host and partner, John Yu. John, say hello to everyone. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. And John, we have a great guest. Why don't you take it away and introduce our guest? Thanks, Misha. It's really a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Vinny Agarwal. Vinny is a professor in the political science department at University of California at Berkeley, and he's also the Travers Family Senior Faculty Fellow. But beyond that, those fancy titles, Vinny is one of the people who is one of the experts on economics and business and are the subject of our podcast, the uh, Asia or Indo-Pacific region. And so we thought, uh, since we spent a lot of time talking about security and hard power and diplomacy, the one dimension that a lot of people sometimes mention but don't talk enough about or think hard is the economic issues in the Asia Pacific. So we couldn't think of a better guest to join us. And Vinny, Vinny went to University of Michigan and he got his PhD at Stanford. He's the author of a number of very interesting books about things like international debt and protectionism and trade. <clears throat> he's edited more volumes than I can count. And he's a, a long, I, I've really got to know him well because we've organized and been involved with a lot of conferences that bring together people in the United States and Asia to talk about these important issues. So I'm going to think of a better guy to join us. And uh, Vinny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for, thanks for taking time out of your schedule. Thank you, John. Thank you, Misha. Super. So welcome. Let's, let's, yeah, let's just get started. So um, one thing is, uh, you know, we don't have a shooting war going on with China. A lot of people in the American security community uh, identify China as our great rival for the rest of the century, perhaps. But a lot of the, seems to me, a lot of the competition has been in the economic realm. So Vinny, who's winning? <laughs> Who's winning the competition between China and the United States in the uh, economic realm? John being subtle <laughs> as usual, Vinny. Well, uh, my economist friends would not like me to comment on that since they think everybody wins from trade, but I have some uh, slightly different <laughs> views on that. So I'll, I'll try to hope that they don't listen to me talking about this. But yes, I, th I think the Chinese are winning. And uh, the reason Ouch. they're winning is because I think they understand the concept of industrial policy. And I think Americans are naive about industrial policy. And although I like free market economics, I think the, uh, the Chinese have demonstrated that you can intervene in the economy to boost your economy, particularly the things that I study, which is high technology sectors. And there was a kind of fantasy that the United States would dominate in green technology and auto technology, and they would be selling us toys and clothing. And uh, they are selling us toys and clothing, but they're also selling us solar panels and semiconductor-based products and lots of other things. So I, I think in that sense, they're winning. But of course, that's a narrow way of looking at it. But I know that's just a provocative question, John. <laughs> and you just said in the United States, we sort of don't get it on industrial policy because now you're starting to hear about right, the federal government's going to start pouring billions into semiconductors. And is, is this a mistake? I remember the child in me remembers in the 1980s that we talked about doing the same thing. Uh, billions would be poured into, but isn't the conventional story? We didn't need that because American producers moved up the value chain and stopped making cheap chips and started making 
right, processors for, you know, Intel processors or Mac processors and not, uh, you know, commodified chips. Well, I think that's right. I think by and large industrial policy is actually doesn't work very well. And you only have to look at India to see how poorly industrial policy has been implemented. You can go look at Peru. You can look at Mexico and country after country. But to show a bunch of failures is not to show that there's no success. And honestly, I think the United States is going to have a very hard time pursuing an industrial policy because the United States is full of uh, interest groups that can lobby for things. And uh, speaking of reading about stuff in the old days, in the 1950s, you had the textile industry telling us that we needed 150 million woolen blankets in case of nuclear war, and which is why they needed to get protectionism. So I think there's so many false claims for protectionism that it muddies the water when it comes to industrial policy. So what kind of industrial policy would you recommend the United States adopt? It's very interesting. You're, it, it sounds like it's easier for dictators or authoritarians <laughs> to have an uh, industrial policy. It could be wrong, but your point is China's has worked. All those, a lot of those other countries have failed. So if we're going to match them you know, consistent with our democratic system, what, what, what could we be doing right now? Well, I think we have elements of that in the, in the Defense Department thinking about things that are strategic with respect to supply chains. And I, I'm working with one of my graduates, former graduate students, Andrew Reddy, and he and I are actually trying to sort of specify how we can think about economic statecraft and what kinds of tools we can use to promote certain industries without getting into the boondoggle of everybody getting protectionism. Mm -hmm. And I worry a lot that the Biden administration of Build Back Better is going to become a boondoggle for a bunch of people, just as the Trump uh, an effort to pursue industrial policy was. So I, so there, I'm, I'm not saying dictators are the only ones that can do it, but <clears throat> the reason I say that is you look at Singapore, you look at Korea, a number of countries have successfully pursued industrial policy. The question is you need some people to identify these things. You need people who can think about these things somewhat independently, advise government what will work and what will not work. But that's only one part of the equation. I mean, industrial policy has to be tied and linked to investment policy, regulations on investment, and also trade policy. And in, in the trade area, I think we see the Chinese, if you want to talk about a win, the Chinese really are winning in developing trade agreements all around the Asia Pacific, where we've fallen way behind. I mean, talking about that for a second, <clears throat> I should have mentioned also in your introduction, Vinny does a lot of uh, consulting for businesses and companies. I wish I could have consulted for any single of these companies like Nestle, because then I could have free chocolate for as long as I wanted. Or, <laughs> you know, you go, oh, Genentech, because then I'd be immunized from all disease. And Hewlett Pack, I mean, this is a great, uh, Vinny really has, a, and it's one of the reasons we invited him on, because he has a great not, theoretical knowledge, but also really understands how things work. So <clears throat> let me ask you about the, the part about the uh, what you just said about the uh, leaving the United States to a more international dimension, what has been China doing? We really, ha I, I think, uh, we haven't been paying enough attention, actually, to this world. You just mentioned China striking a lot of trade agreements. The only thing I really have been paying attention to is the fact that the United States decided not to <laughs> enter the major trade agreement designed to contain China. What's been going on for the last two or three years in this area? What's China been up to in the trade area while we've been kind of distracted by Trump and now by Afghanistan and Biden? Well, I think when Trump decided to pull out of TPP, I think that was a colossal blunder. And also, speaking of potential colossal blunders, Biden doesn't show much interest in TPP. And, you know, just to tell our audience, TPP is a Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was initiated back literally in 2002. It was negotiated forever. It was finally signed and uh, signed but not ratified in 2016. And then Trump decided to pull out of TPP. 
And that was an important part of American trade strategy. And it was bipartisan. It wasn't a Democratic thing or Republican thing. In fact, the decision to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership and to improve our position in Asia was actually a Bush administration initiative. So then what happened? Basically, we had a, a, a two-pronged strategy which would have been quite effective. We had the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Asia-Pacific, which did not include China, but included Japan and lots of other countries there in Malaysia and so on. And then on the other hand, we had the effort, the TTIP, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership with the European Union, which we were negotiating. And we would have been able to set the rules and the trade rules and intellectual property rules, service sector rules for much of the world if we're cooperating with Asia and cooperating with the EU. There were lots of also domestic political reasons. It's not just solely Trump. It's not that Obama was able to get the agreement ratified. There were conflicts because different groups wanted more. Speaking of genetech and biological companies, they did not like some of the rules in TPP. But every agreement, as you know, John, doing international law is, is flawed in some way. So yeah. TPP and uh, TTIP were really two important arrows that we were going to pursue. When we pulled out of TPP and then when TTIP sort of went away after a little while, because Trump was not particularly interested in negotiating with the EU, the Chinese began to aggressively pursue the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which consists now of 15 countries. India pulled out, it was supposed to be 16 countries, which started in 2011, but it was very slow. And suddenly, in 2020, they were able to conclude that. And that is now the world's largest trade agreement, one-third of the world's GDP and one-third of the world's population. They've also pursued the Belt and Road Initiative, which is an investment program, which is very large. They've also pursued the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is another initiative. So they are active on all these fronts in, institutionally, and that has important implications for business. So, Vinny, uh, this is Misha. I, I wanted to um, jump in since you mentioned the One Belt, One Road uh, on, on China. And, you know, John, a few minutes ago referenced back in the 80s and uh, the, the, you know, industrial policy. And, of course, if we remember back to Japan's supposedly vaunted industrial policy, it, it started falling apart in the, you know, probably in, by the mid 80s. But certainly that became manifest after the, the, the end of the economic bubble and the popping of the asset and the equity bubble. Uh, but then all of a sudden we, we, we saw these cracks and these fissures in what had seemed to be this vaunted uh, industrial policy and, and located problems in the Ministry of International Trade uh, and, and the like. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have this supposed, again, you know, uh, unstoppable industrial policy on the part of China, and yet there's a lot of questions about the actual efficacy of uh, One Belt, One Road, as, as well as some of the other things that that uh, that China is doing, that there's uh, there's more, there, you know, there's more smoke than, than fire, I guess, if you want to put it that way, uh, which is not to deny the growth that we've seen, but rather that the sort of sustainable development that you need is is questionable and certainly in in some parts of the country uh and the the whole idea of innovation and and how innovative the the chinese are is questionable and there's a big debate over that you know there's those who think they are and those who think they aren't where do you come down on this and where do you come down on one belt and one road is 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 china going down the path of other nations and in, in over uh you know being over rigid in terms of of directing development and investment uh, or has it somehow figured out the, what's eluded everyone else Oh, I don't think China's figured it out. I think you're right. It's, it's, they now have changed the name from One Belt, One Road to Belt and Road. Uh, just to tell our, our listeners, uh, Belt is actually the 
the land strategy road, confusingly, is actually the Silk Road, which is a maritime strategy. Uh, you know, imperial powers have problems. I'm not going to say that China's not going to have a problem in going into Africa. There's always already been pushback going into Central Asia. On the other hand, a lot of these things are working. And I'm not I'm not one for directed central planning. Don't get me wrong. And uh, But I do think if you look at Japan, and, I, and just to go back to that very quickly, Japan was very successful in catching up from the 50s to the 80s and, and getting into high technology and, and becoming a major producer of automobiles. Who in the 50s would have thought that the Japanese would be selling cars in Michigan? Now, that's not all industrial policy, right? That's also following an efficient economic policy. And one, people, one thing that is important is people get confused between, oh, if we just have an industrial policy, everything's going to be fine. No, <laughs> the world is littered with failed industrial policy. If you don't have good macroeconomic policy, if you don't basically run a free market with some intervention, it's a recipe for disaster. The Chinese are actually sort of doing that. Actually, Chinese have a very big free market. They have lots of competition going on. They have 200 auto producers. They have not picked the one auto producer where they're putting all their marbles in this. So the Chinese have a much more subtle approach to industrial policy, which draws from standard capitalist theory, you know, Chicago School Economics about promoting lots of competition. And ironically, we in the United States have much less competition in high technology sectors than the Chinese do. And I was just reading a great story that while Huawei is going down making telephones, the next Chinese company is coming up. So they haven't followed the kind of pure national champion strategy of picking one company to be their be-all and the end-all. And I do think that's a terrible strategy because if that one company implodes, you're stuck. They have tons and tons of competitors, and that's uh, worked out very well for them. What I worry about BRI, BR, you know, Belt and Road, is that this is a, a plan where we don't really have a counter. Uh, Trump talked about it a little bit, then Biden says, okay, we're going to have Build Back Better. Now we're going to have Build Back Better World, which he announced in, I think, uh, at the G7 meeting in the summer. And so, so where's the money? What are we going to do? Do we have a strategy? If you think BR, uh, Bolton Road has a problem, wait till you look at B3W. That's really not going anywhere. So I think we don't, we need to think more strategically is what I'm saying. It's not always we need to pick winners and losers and, and pursue that kind of strategy. And the Chinese have thought strategically. Yeah, they have a plan for finance. They have a plan for investment. And they have a plan for trade. Are they going to have lots of problems? Of course they're going to have lots of problems. Is there pushback in Africa? Is there pushback in India against some of these initiatives? Yes, even the Pakistanis have their doubts about throwing their lot in completely. Do they see a credible alternative in the United States? No. And the problem these countries face fundamentally in Asia is they're highly reliant on China for their trade and investment, and they're highly reliant on the United States for their security. This is a disjuncture that we need to figure out in the United States and how to make otherwise, lo and behold, they're just going to choose security with China too. That is clearly not in our interest. Right. Um, let me let me actually ask you uh, about Chinese political development, but one note on, on Belt and Road. In Chinese, it's still one yeah, belt, one road. And what they did, of course, is change the nomenclature for us because they realized, uh, not only us, but the rest of the world, got a little nervous. So it's one belt, one road that's going to China. So no, 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 this is the generic belt and the road, and you're right. It's uh, but, but in Chinese, they're very clear. <laughs> it's one belt, it's one road, and it comes to Beijing. So uh, I prefer 
prefer to call it that because I think we should we should call it the things that they call it. But that's you know it's just a a personal choice. Um, but let me ask you though, it's interesting. You're very right in how, of course, you describe the um, the way that the government has. Uh, um, Avoided trying to choose a champion, which is you know the surest route to making big mistakes, or 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 you know they've done a little bit more of this. I think you know choosing, as you see in the Made in China 2025 uh, set of policies, you know they have identified core sectors, areas, technologies that they want to champion, but but it hasn't been you know sort of a single point of failure in the way that you could look at Japan and say there were just a few things that they focused on and they didn't. They weren't able to carry those through, you know. If you remember um, plasma versus LCD and uh, the the supercomputing that they wanted to do, but uh, the question I wanted to ask you is how you assess then um, what really seems to be a much more recent or recently a much more intrusive Chinese state policy uh, towards uh, towards companies uh, you know we we've seen um a crackdown uh not just uh, down on uh, alibaba and jack ma and ant uh, but on dd on the uh, the entire um uh, the entire tutoring sector um that uh, the arrest of uh, obviously of of uh, some leading uh leading industrialists um how do you interpret this is this is this just you know is it business as usual is it politics we don't have to worry about it or is this an indication that that what you have now is a shift in emphasis on the part of the party to reining in potential independent power centers i.e uh, world-class, globally competitive international corporations, uh, and and making sure that there can be no um, no one marching to any drummer other than the the CCP's drummer. Well, I agree with you. That's how industrial policy fails. When you become excessively centralized and authoritarian, and you decide that, oh, we don't want to have a lot of websites, and we want to have only robotics, and we want to have only this, that is what undermines the free market. And ironically, the Chinese were playing the free market very well uh, five to seven years ago. And I think they were just, you know, they had a thumb, a little bit of a thumb. Now they have a fist. And having a fist on the scale or a ton of, I don't know, the right analogy. It's like a great. It's a great analogy. But, it's a great way to but I think it, yeah. it's very, very different. And it's if you're subtle about it, you can do pretty well. <clears throat> if you block imports of wind turbines to try to encourage yours, that actually helps your companies a lot. In the United States, we've had some strategic protection once in a while, not very much. But the Chinese are actually doing a pretty good job. Uh, this is actually not a good recipe for the Chinese. Maybe good from an American perspective that President Xi has decided to become a complete authoritarian and undermine his own economy. So down the road, they actually may be losing it. And in fact, the Chinese had a flourishing technology sector. Okay, we may not like everybody just doing Facebook type uh, you know, uh, companies and so on, and we should be focusing on hardcore robotics. But what people forget is a lot of there's a lot of spillover and interaction in Silicon Valley. Valley, and it's not that everybody's going to do hardcore robotics and we should not be building websites, much as I think there's too much social media because I teach a lot of students who don't read anything but social media, personal commentary. But I think it's very important that you not use the heavy-handed approach. 
And so in that sense, I think we will see the, uh, a, the beginning of failure of industrial policy in China because they have not really thought through what they want to do. And they were actually just doing a little bit of leaning here and there, which worked quite well. They did well in, in, in the solar area. They did well in wind. I think they're doing pretty well in the auto sector. But if suddenly they start saying, no, we pick these five sectors and you can only be in these five sectors, that begins to look a lot like the Soviet Union. And we know what happened to the Soviet economy. So that's good for us from that perspective. Yeah. <clears throat> Vinny, I was I was uh, really struck by something you said a little bit earlier. I never thought of it that way, but it's now that you said it, it sort of crystallizes things for me, which is you said uh, all these <clears throat> countries in the Pacific and in the Indo-Pacific region, they're quite dependent on China for trade, investment, economic growth, but they're dependent on the United States for security. And uh, you, I, I don't know if you implied, but the left hang for me, can you actually have a long-term system where it's divided that way and it seemed to me you're, you're is that is that the case is it possible actually for uh you know our our system that we're i guess we're trying to come to grips with now uh this international system to be dependent on one power for economics in asia and then a different one for security or does it is it like a contradiction and eventually it has to be uh you know all one hegemon for both uh so what, what, what do you think is going to happen well, that's where I'm, uh, I'm an international political economist and not a political economist, not an economist. So I, I do not think this that is sustainable in the long run. I do think what happens is over time, security considerations come to the fore. If you start looking at what happened with Belt and Road or One Belt, One Road, as uh, Misha prefers, I, I know that the Chinese like to use that term. Uh, but but whatever it is, <laughs> that you can see the Philippines, as you know, Donna, we've talked a lot about South, South China Sea issues and the Philippines started backing off. When money starts flowing, strangely enough, your political views start changing a little bit too, John. So, strangely <laughs> enough. So, I do not think, as in my economist friends would say, this is not an equilibrium. This is an unstable yeah. equilibrium. And what we may see is decoupling. And we may see a number of Asian countries saying, okay, we're throwing our lot in with the United States uh, in standard international relations theory, and we're going to do all our security, and we're going to trade more with them. But the Chinese are playing upon that tension. They've done it with Korea. We've seen with the fat missile case in Korea, which I'm sure your readers or your listeners are familiar with, the Chinese retaliate against the Koreans. So there is no way to disentangle just doing economics with the Chinese, but oh, by the way, our security is provided by the Americans. That doesn't work well. And in the Cold War, as we know, most of our trade and investment and so on was with the Europeans and with the, the free countries in Asia, not with China, not with the Soviet Union, not with the Eastern block. And so there is a tendency towards moving in that direction. And I do believe we're going to have a bipolar economic world. I wrote a paper about that several years ago. People thought I was crazy. Oh, no, there's so much trade with China. It's going to continue forever. I said, no, it's not. And neither will investment. So I think there will be a kind of decoupling taking place. And that, unfortunately, it's not really good for American firms, because American firms now have to scurry and get into the Asian markets where they need to it. And they have to worry a lot. If the Chinese are doing this to their own technology companies. What do you think is going to happen to American technology and companies in China when President Xi decides, oh, well, I'm not sure we like Apple that much. So I think there is a 
remind me next time Vinny trades stocks, I'm in with him. I'm not even gonna pick myself anymore. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna mirror like all those people who, who just trade whatever Berkshire Hathaway trades. <laughs> so one last question, uh, uh, Vinny, and then Misha's got some uh, trivia questions oh. for you. I understand to close out the show. So watch out. <laughs> because I hear I hear Jeopardy's looking for a new host. So oh, you never know. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> but um, so you know it's very fashionable. It's just Vinny, it's really striking, as you say, five, 10 years ago, everyone, scholars, are so optimistic about U.S.-China uh, economic relations and Pacific relations. And then now it's very fashionable right, to be pessimistic. But maybe is there a, a larger reason for optimism that uh, you used to hear more of, not so much anymore, uh, China's population problem, right? They have uh, workforces getting steadily older because of their one-child uh, policy. Uh, that a lot of the countries in the region, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, the area of Philippines, Vietnam, the places are really going to grow in the next century. They are still tightly tied to us in the security uh, area. Maybe China is going to make a lot of mistakes given the, uh, the, you know, the problems you identified with failures in industrial policy. Is there some kind of economic containment policy we should pursue or we just sit back, you know, to try to keep China contained, let them kind of internally collapse because of their debt problems and their population problems and misspending, uh, you know, the mistakes that any authoritarian regime will make. And we, that maybe it's sort of like an economic version of containment from the Soviet years. And we should be less adventurous, less, less not adventurous, less interventionist in economic affairs. That's sort of, you know, you see that out there still, it's kind of disappearing as a, as a school of thought, it seems to me, but is there some truth to that? Maybe it's just a difference about what we should do in the long term versus the short term. What do you think of that alternate, more optimistic? Well, I, I try to be optimistic, but I, I think your analogy is apropos, but it's, it's a little misleading because uh, Reagan didn't sit back and wait for the Soviet Union to collapse. And in fact, we engaged in uh, an arms war, uh, arms race with the Soviet Union. And the problem is that we haven't really thought through what these various arrangements are of One Belt, One Road, RCEP, AIAB. And we've sort of been very... Uh, sort of placid about, oh, well, nothing's going to happen. Oh, there's going to be a mistake here. It's not going to work out. China has a demographic problem, which it does. That doesn't mean we should not have a strategy. We really need to think this through. And fine, it's very important. I agree with Biden on the point that we need to build back the United States. We need to have roads that I can drive on without my car falling apart. And whenever I used to come back from Singapore, I used to say, my God, I'm in a developing country again, or something's wrong with my suspension. How come I'm bump, bump, bump on, I, on 880, as you know, John? <clears throat> so we do need to think about you know, building back better in the United States. But that doesn't mean we should be so focused on domestic policy that we ignore these kinds of institution-building efforts by the Chinese. And we've basically, uh, I think, under it's bipartisan. We've sort of ignored Asia for a very long time. If something flares up, we oh, what's happening? What's happening? But that is not a sustained policy. And uh, Deng Xiaoping said this a long time ago, you play the long game. We're not very good at playing the long game. We have no sustained strategy in Asia. We don't look at these institutions and say, what can we actually do? It's completely reactive now. In 1944, 1947, when the US built the post-war order, the liberal economic order that was of great benefit to the United States, but of great benefit to much of the free world, they, they thought this through, right? What is gonna work, what's not gonna work? 
I can't see people thinking this through as to what kind of institutional design we have now beyond, oh my God, the liberal order is collapsing and the Chinese are taking over. Well, there are alternatives to that. We've been in a bipolar world before. We don't have to completely freak out about it, but we need to have a sustained strategy. And if we become obsessively domestically focused and don't think about strict economic statecraft, which is a pitch, that's what I like to write about. We need economic statecraft that includes business and government and how that interaction works. And it in includes looking at trade, investment, and, and uh, industrial policy, right? All these three things kind of go together. And we, we need to think of a strategy. It doesn't mean we should just have industrial policy or we should have, just have protectionism like under Trump. I mean, that worked a little bit, didn't work very well at all. Uh, it doesn't mean we should only restrict investment coming from other countries as we have with the enhanced CFIUS procedures, if you follow that. But I do think we need to have a focus on building out a strategy and not just an economic strategy. And a lot of economists are just, oh, let the market work, let the market work, everything's fine, or don't don't worry, they're going to collapse any week now. I don't think any of those things are going to happen. I don't think that's the way to think about it. And therefore, I advocate thinking more strategically about that. And that's why I think having a podcast like yours is good. So you can have conversations about what are the kinds of things we should be thinking about and how can we engage American corporations to think beyond the quarter, right? Not just think about quarterly profits, but hey, what are you guys doing? Are you really selling off all of our technology? And we have things in the Commerce Department, others to manage that, but we don't want to be hitting all these companies with a tough hand and say you can't invest there or that. But we need to have conversations with these companies, and we can't just have a hands-off policy. Let me just end our substantive discussion for the quiz show. So, so here's your chance, Vinny. You've got a chance to write a one-page memo to President Biden, because he's not going to read longer than one page. And Trump, it was a half page, but still, you're just on one page. So you can put three things. It sounds to me like on trade, you say, change your mind, join the TPP or the new version of the TPP. But what, what are the three things you put in that memo and say, here are the three concrete things you can do, you know, right now that we can achieve by the, hopefully, you know, by the end of this, this first term of this administration or, you know, or only term, depending on what happens in a few years, that will advance Vinny's vision. <laughs> That's a great, like you just call it, Vinny's vision, right? Like, what's going to advance Vinny's vision uh, here of what we should be doing in well, Asia? Well, I think there are a number of things. I mean, first, we need... You only get three. You oh. only get three, Vinny. All right. You're such a professor. You only get three. <laughs> this is the government now. I'm grouping TTIP and TPP as one. That is negotiation and trade. We need negotiations with the Europeans. Again, we need negotiations. We need to rejoin CPTPP, which is what happened after TPP sort of fell apart. They went off without us. With respect mm -hmm. to investment, I think we need to strategically consider what we're blocking, what we're not blocking, how we're encouraging investment, and think about what are we going to do with our investment rules, sometimes which are too restrictive, and they don't just become something for the lawyers to have fun with and, and block imports all the uh, in, in, incoming investment all the time. And with respect to industrial policy, we need to think about how we we prevent this from becoming a boondoggle for a bunch of protectionist industries in the United States. And uh, Trump was doing it with the steel industry and the coal industry. And Biden's going to do it with some of the green industry because we're going to use 100% domestic content, which I don't think is the way to go. And I think we really need to think clearly, how do we identify strategic sectors that are really strategic from a government perspective and from a business perspective, but not just giving people protection willy-nilly because they're not very competitive. There you have it. That was actually really good. Most academics cannot reduce anything into a 3.1-page strategy memo for the president. But that's the way the government works. But he had like 
42 some parts. <laughs> so I, I know. Well, well, he, well, he, he said, in the, you can always see in the memo, refer to attachment. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm a great believer in the appendix. <laughs> it, it, it was all the appendix. You know, actually, but I think cool. earlier, Vinny gave us, John, our, our motto for the podcast. He said, I'm sort of loosely quoting, but he said, your podcast is good. It's like Animal House. Knowledge is good. <laughs> Knowledge is good. That's a word like, really? like paper college now. <laughs> Podcast is good. That's what we're going to put on our shirts. Vinny, that was that was great. I mean, there's 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 there is a lot to talk yeah, about. We're going to have to have you back to... on because we got to dig deep. Yeah, you know, I'd love issues. to hear your thoughts yeah. on you know some of the things we've tried, like the Blue Dot Network, and and then actually looking at the efficacy whether there is. So, for example, you know, we, we talked about and, and you hammered on. I think. Oh, exactly rightly about our leaving TPP, but TPP itself didn't die, right? The Japanese continued it. It's now the comprehensive and progressive TPP. So the CPTPP with uh, with uh, 11 members instead of 12, obviously without us in it, it's, it's a huge difference. But, uh, you know, the efficacy then of having other states try to play or fill in that role that, that we have abandoned. And of course, TPP itself didn't start with the United States, right? It started with four uh, Pacific nations, and we came in very much later. So, so there's a lot of interesting questions about, you know, not to not that we should be leading from behind, but, you know, are there other ways in which the US can take advantage of what of what some states are doing? But that's actually not the question I had. And I don't I don't actually have a quiz. John loves like trivia quizzes. I don't have a trivia quiz. But given that you were a Wolverine, and I was an Illini, I have to ask, are you a University of Michigan football fan? Go Blue! Oh, no. Oh, no. So now... All I can so say is, when Stanford plays Cal, somebody said, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep screaming Go Blue? I said, because I'm cheering for a team that actually wins. <laughs> except last year. Not last year. Except, oh. except it's not been a very good uh, last few that years. That was the I question. Have that, Misha, don't, don't, don't bring in these terrible things. I thought this was a friendly conversation. Not anymore. Now, permission to treat as a hostile witness, Your Honor. <laughs> Two, two and four last year. The only team that did worse was Il the Illinois, the Illini that went two and six. So what's your prediction? I'm just say something of hiring alums, which I probably shouldn't oh. say, but I'm not sure. Okay, so what, what's your prediction for this year? I think that's like saying not to. economists when they go, you your markets go up, markets go down. <laughs> Come on now. That's like when I was growing I up in the 80s watching Northwestern. There's nowhere to go but up. That's, that's what I think. That's what they would say about Northwestern every year. But you know, I lived a few Ooh. few miles from there and it was a it was a miserable time. All right. So we will have Vinny back to see indeed if the Wolverines did better. Or if the Illini did better. So uh, that was great, though, Vinny. Thank you so much for it's a really hard set of issues that people don't really get. Uh, not football, but but trade and trade policy. Uh, and really appreciate you, you know, parsing it for us and, and breaking it down in, in the clear way that you did. Thanks, Misha. Thanks, Thanks Vinny. John. Well, that was a great conversation with uh, Vinny Agarwal uh, at UC Berkeley about trade and, and industrial policy and, and a bunch of issues that that we really do need to pay more attention to but it would be too easy to sit up in the ivory tower talking about abstract and abstruse trade packs when we know that the world's attention has been focused elsewhere and that is on afghanistan and while we're not 
here to talk about Afghanistan. Certainly, I'm not qualified to talk about Afghanistan. There is a there is an Asia angle to it, which came up very quickly, immediately, so to speak, uh, both in terms of what China may benefit from this, as well as comparisons uh, or or uh, perception about how this affecting America's credibility and role in the world could spill over into Asia. John, what did, what did you think about the, the the speed with which people began to link Afghanistan to the challenge we have from China and Asia? Great question, Misha. You know, the one thing about Afghanistan, and we could talk a lot, endless lengths as others are, uh, looking backwards at mistakes that were made and whether it was the right thing to do, whether it was it worth it. And I was in the government at, uh, on 9-11 at the Justice Department, I was part of the some of the people who thought about uh, whether we should intervene in Afghanistan uh, or whether it was just going to be another uh, counterterrorism mission. Uh, and putting that aside, I think being forward-looking, uh, you know, we have to ask what effect has this had on America's position in the region and the world. I mean, Afghanistan is, if it's not in Asia, it's Asia adjacent. <laughs> it uh, borders on a lot of the countries that we talk about on this podcast. And does the coming of the, the return of the Taliban, <clears throat> America's withdrawal from there, uh, destabilize the region? Does it make life harder for allies of ours like India? Does it make life easier for rivals of ours like China and perhaps maybe Pakistan? You know, maybe this makes Pakistan a much harder uh, problem too, although I certainly feel would no love lost if the Pakistanis were to have more problems thanks to their shielding of the Taliban all these, you know, for 20 years. Um, and so on along those lines, I mean, I, I think it couldn't escape anybody's notice that um, one of the people celebrating, it seemed, our withdrawal from Afghanistan were not just the Taliban, but the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party chose to put throw in their lot with this medieval band of religious fanatics, even before even before they had taken over. They met with them. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Um, you know the 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 state minister met with them before they had taken over. Yeah, and they've and they've uh, been uh, trying to negotiate economic aid and uh, trade policies and many things. Many things that he's talking about these sort of bilateral agreements with Beijing. But I think even worse yet, you had uh, elements of uh, Chinese media, uh, state-connected state Chinese media, not just you know bloggers and so on, but state-connected Chinese media threatening Taiwan and saying America's withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, should send a message to the Taiwanese that the United States won't come to their assistance uh, either, and that the minute that the Chinese, the minute that the Chinese start crossing the strait. Uh, to try to invade Taiwan, America would run for the exits. Um, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Anything that makes the Chinese actually look worse to say it. But it is a sign that uh, credibility is lost. Now, remember, people said that after Vietnam, too. I mean, I remember um, after, and, and it might be the case, you know, looking back at the archives of the Soviet Union, that they tried to take advantage of it. There's no doubt that after we withdrew in this humiliating way from Saigon, but the Soviet Union went on something of an offensive all around the world in places like Including Angola. Including Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan, El Salvador, Afghanistan itself. Uh, and we were definitely uh, in retreat in the Carter years. So that, I, I think that's something that really does affect it. You could see uh, our, 
the countries are up for grabs that we were talking about with Vinny just now. You know, uh, yeah, not uh, just you know places like the Philippines or Vietnam or Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, or even Korea and Japan having to re recalibrate their security strategy going forward because we're slightly less dependable than we used to be. Yeah, I think it's it's not only that, and look, we're not. I don't think we're saying anything particularly that, that let's put this we're not saying anything that others you know haven't said but we are trying to you know sort of link it to asia i think the question is not just did we pull out because you know there was widespread support for for pulling out of afghanistan after 20 years it's the way that we did it. we look utterly incompetent no one can can put lipstick on that pig no matter how hard they try and that i think is the the real you know, immediate effect on on potential partners and allies, right? Is to say, you guys don't know what in the hell you're doing, and you and you did it in the worst possible way. Uh, and how can we trust you if you know even if you make a strategic level decision, all nations do, but if you do it in such a way as to create far more. Uh, negative externalities, you know, a disastrous uh, result than if you hadn't done it at all. And I think that's that's really going to come back to haunt us. I think the other thing we, we have to think about a lot, and, and this is where, you know, it does affect Asia, is the potential geopolitical implication of all of it, not just of the United States in the Middle East, but since, as you pointed out, Pakistan, and particularly the ISI, uh, which has given great aid and support to the Taliban. Some believe that they have extreme influence over the Taliban. Some believe they control the Taliban, whatever, whatever the truth is. Pakistan is strengthened. Through Pakistan, China is strengthened. And that means India is extremely worried. And so India is not going to look, at least initially, to Washington to figure out how to solve the problem that Washington made. Uh, it is at least possible that India will turn to an old ally and an old suitor, which is Russia, uh, which has already expanded its its role and its influence in the Middle East uh, over the past you know, half decade or so. Um, then, of course, you have the question of uh, of the impact on allies like Taiwan, allies like South Korea, even allies like Japan, who again will be will be talking about the competency issue, rightly or wrongly. It doesn't matter if they're wrong about the competency issue. It's what they believe and what they perceive and how that affects their actions. Uh, so there is actual real uh, effect and and spillover uh, on this. And that and that would mention just a third thing, which is other allies of ours, and I'm thinking here particularly of the Brits, who have actually done far more than than we have or, or certainly seem to be and have been much more effective and much more aggressive in trying to get their people out of a disastrous situation. Um, this is a, a country, and there, there are others, and I would put France and, and even Germany into this a little bit, that we were watching gingerly begin to step into the waters of the Indo-Pacific and get involved. Um, in fact, just last month, the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier was in the South China Sea. It's still in Asia. This was something that, that the Biden administration actually did not welcome very much. In fact, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, said, well, we'd much rather have them involved in Europe. And there's there's a debate about that. There's an argument to have. Um, but the fact is, is that the Brits were getting involved and the, the French have been involved. Um, and we need that. We need, we need other allies and other nations that have capabilities to be involved in the Indo-Pacific. And now we're at loggerheads with them. And, and there are reports of extremely strained relations between the U.S. and Britain in Kabul right now. So 
uh, this may have effects uh, in the Indo-Pacific where we'd like to work with other partners. But now, because of this, we're going to have a much more difficult time, not only working with them in the Middle East and not only working with them in Asia, but possibly out, I'm sorry, in Europe, but also be, also possibly out in Asia. This is why I find, and we're not relitigating uh, the policy, but that's why I find Biden's decision just hard to understand. You know, you had a situation where we were uh, kind of in the same situation we were in Iraq uh, before President Obama's full pullout, which led to uh, the rise of ISIS. You know, we were in a situation where we had a few thousand troops in Iraq. And also, let me say, it's not just Biden. Also, President Trump, of course, set us on this uh, path towards withdrawal. But you have you know, a situation where we have a small force in Afghanistan. Its primary job is uh, training and support, not frontline combat. Um, I think the Afghanistan the Afghanistan army with the, our air and logistic and intelligence support was um, doing a credible job uh, fighting the Taliban. And so what, what's the cause? We had suffered almost, I think, no battle casualties in over a year. So what's the cost of staying in there versus all of these right costs that are starting to accumulate quickly uh, for pulling out? Uh, and, and so sometimes you think the, the Biden administration was so eager for the symbolism uh, that Trump was eager for, too, this idea of ending forever wars as if wars just go on forever in the same state, which they don't, that that was worth all of this, you know, the disruption in Asia of our security arrangements, economic arrangements, which, you know, is, you know, in the long, if you look at from 1945 on, has been a story of success. You know, we have setbacks in Asia, you know, like Vietnam, or we've had like Korea and places and we've had the rise of economic competitors in a way which we wanted, right? We wanted Japan to be rehabilitated and to grow. And we wanted all these countries to have successful economies and bear more of their own responsibilities. It's been a great story of success in the long run for the last 80 years almost. And then to really roll the dice on whether that's going to continue just to get right the 3,000 troops out of Afghanistan playing this much more reduced role. It's uh, to me. It's just a, a great example. I mean, what Vinny was talking about this sort of short-term policy thinking driven by domestic policy incentives and sacrificing long-term strategic thought. I, so I think it's a sad. It's a sad day, not just because of the video and photos and humiliating retreat. I, I hope it's not, but it seems to be a sad day also because it's a turning point for our standing in the Pacific, which in the long run is more important than how we do in Afghanistan, frankly. Too well, John. I, I don't often say this. At least not publicly. I hope you're wrong. Um, so maybe maybe we'll leave it at that. It's obviously an Me unfolding too. situation, <laughs> and um, uh, I would just note that you know for for a lot of people, um, and I'm not one of them, but you are one of them who were involved and involved for 20 years or involved for a very long period of their professional career. It's it's very very difficult. Obviously, it's it's worse worst of all for the Afghans, but it's very difficult for all those who served and all those who worked on it and thought about it. Uh, and that's something that that a lot of us don't don't fully appreciate um, because we weren't directly involved in it, but we certainly can watch and watch the bigger trends 
Uh, and, and that's where I think we do need to understand that whatever we think to some degree is irrelevant. It's what China thinks are its opportunities now. Uh, it's what our allies worry about. Uh, and like you said, whether our standing in the Pacific has actually been materially compromised or not, we will find out. And as we find out, we'll continue to report on it here at the Pacific Century. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.